This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre. Welcome to the second antimicrobial resistance session for um, NMS 2018. Uh, my name is Sue Phillips. I'm the uh, Chief Executive Officer at Therapeutic Guidelines. Uh, it's my real pleasure to be involved, uh, to be chairing this session, but also um, to have part for Therapeutic Guidelines to have partnered with NPS Medicine Wise and to have been involved in the co-design uh, of this session and the previous session for those of you who attended yesterday. And we'll use the wrap-up session at the end um, just to bring all the threads of discussion together. Um, so, and for therapeutic guidelines, there's a spe very special reason why uh, we're particularly pleased to be partnering with NPS. It's our, uh, the 40-year anniversary of the publication of antibiotic guidelines in Australia. So. We've got a number of events um, scattered throughout the year to celebrate that achievement. And we thank NPS Medicine Wise for um, allowing us to partner on this session. So you'll hear four presentations. The format is a little bit different to yesterday, if you came to yesterday's session. But we're going to deep dive into innovative approaches to antimicrobial resistance from a number of different perspectives. Whereas yesterday we focused on a lot of very high level uh, important um, strategies at federal government level, state, hospital, primary care, and research on what works to improve prescribing. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Mark uh, Blaskovich. Um, I'm just giving the short versions of people's bios. Mark, uh, I suspect you've written this, so he, he is an antibiotic hunter. Uh, based at the Center for Superbug Solutions, I love that uh, title, um, in the Institute for Molecular Bioscience at the University of Queensland. So, welcome, Mark. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to present here today. So, today I'm going to be talking about some research that we're doing within our group in terms of trying to discover new antibiotics and try to detect infections. Um, but I'll start off with an overview of, of the antibiotic resistance crisis and, and why we need new antibiotics. So quick disclosure, um, we do have research funding for developing antibiotics. We do have collaborative projects with industry for developing projects. And I'm an inventor on some patents, which as you'll see by this talk are very unlikely to lead to commercial returns. So there's been a lot of um, popular press articles in the last decade uh, talking about the rise of superbug resistance to antibiotics. And the World Health Organization pointed out a couple of years ago that we're heading towards a post-antibiotic era or pre-antibiotic era where common infections once again are going to kill you. Um, and before antibiotics were developed, about 40% of deaths were caused by infections that could not be treated. And if we don't develop new antibiotics or new strategies to fight antimicrobial resistance, we face a return to that era. Um, just to be very clear, and I, I do this generally in talks with the, the general public, when we're talking about antibiotic resistance, we're talking about the bacteria becoming resistant to the antibiotic, not the body becoming resistant. And there is a, um, the Wellcome Trust did a survey in the UK about four or five years ago, and about 40% of the population don't understand that distinction. I was interested to see the MPS survey that in Australia it's only about 15% of the population. So whether we're better educated than the UK, it's, yeah or more awareness of antimicrobial resistance. Antibiotic resistance is nothing new. So from the very first discovery of penicillin to the most recent new antibiotics, adaptomycin, and 
antibiotic resistance is detected in the clinic generally within a few years or even before the antibiotic is introduced. So what's happening now? Why are we facing this antibiotic crisis? And basically, we've been in this arms race with bacteria for the last 60, 70 years where we develop a new antibiotic, the bacteria develop resistance to the antibiotic, and we come up with a, a new and improved version or a new type of antibiotic. And in the past, we were developing a lot of antibiotics that were able to keep ahead of the bacteria developing resistance. And what's happened in the last couple of decades, we're no longer producing antibiotics fast enough. And so we've got what's called an antibiotic void. So basically, in the last 55 years, we have not discovered a completely new class of antibiotics that has been developed and taken into the clinic. And so if you look at the timelines where new antibiotics where classes were discovered, they generally are in the 1940s to 1970s, which is the, the golden age of antibiotic discovery. The reasons for this and the decline in, in the development of new antibiotics are largely due to financial economic reasons. So if you look at two of the most successful new antibiotics, their sales for their first two years on the market, so Tefluro and Avicaz, they made 50 to 80 million US dollars in their first two years of sales. And you compare that to other drug indications, Lyrica made 1.3 billion, Genuvia for diabetes made 1.4 billion. So if you're a pharmaceutical company looking where to invest your money and you're, you know, your company, you're meant to be responding to your shareholders, it makes absolutely no financial sense to invest in antibiotics because your financial return, you know, the cost of developing the drug is exactly the same, your financial return for an antibiotic is so much less than, than other classes of drugs. And this is reflected uh, by the price you can charge for a drug. So antibiotics, the most successful whiz-bang new antibiotic, you're lucky if you can charge more than $1,000 a day. That's what the market will bear for a drug which actually cures your disease and saves your life. And there are very few drugs that actually do that. Um, so over the course of a week to, to two weeks treatment, you can make maybe $15,000 for one patient for a new antibiotic. And you compare that with the newest anti-cancer therapy that was just approved in the States, close to 500,000 US for one patient, one treatment. And that doesn't necessarily cure the disease. So for some reason, in the market, you can charge so much more for other indications than you can for antibiotics. And because of that, um, that that's where the industry puts its efforts. So for anti-cancer drugs in 2015, in the three stages of human clinical testing, there are over 800 oncology drugs. And you compare that the same year to antibiotics, there are 43. And this is why we're facing a crisis. We don't have enough antibiotics in the pipeline. So the, the drug discovery pipeline, um, it's a, it takes a long time, and there's a lot of attrition. So from the initial discovery of an exciting new compound to getting it approved for use in humans generally is a 10 to 15 year process. And there's a lot of attrition with this funnel-shaped pipeline. And particularly when you go into the clinical trials, so phase one, looking initial signs for safety, phase two, looking for initial signs of efficacy, and then phase three, the large-scale trials proving both efficacy and safety, you generally use, lose about 50% of your candidates at each stage of those um, clinical trials to eventually end up with your approved medicine. And if you look at, for example, the oncology drug pipeline, it reflects that attrition. So phase one, you've got a lot more candidates than in phase two, and let's get windowed down into phase three, and about half of those will eventually get approved. If you look at the current antibiotic pipeline, it's flat, and in fact, it's almost inverted. And so those compounds in phase one are the compounds which in 
maybe five to ten years time are going to be your new antibiotics. So if there are ten there now, you lose about half of them in phase two and another half in phase three. That means in ten years time when resistance is going to be even more important, we're down to maybe two, one or two new antibiotics coming onto the market. And so this lack of new antibiotics um, is leading to what's been called a perfect storm. So you have this rise in antimicrobial resistance, um, so MRSA and VRE and fluoroquinoline resistance rising uh, higher and higher levels. The number of new antibiotics, which is the blue line, is decreasing from the, the 1980s, 1990s. There were uh, as many as 20 or 30 new antibiotics being approved every year, and that's about two or three for the last four or five years per year. And that's largely driven by the exit of almost all major pharmaceutical companies from antibiotic development. So again, back in 1990, there were close to 20 companies that were doing antibiotic research. And now they're, depending on how you define it, maybe two or three of the big pharma companies. So all the research is now being done by little biotechs and academia. So what do we do? How do we reboot the antibiotic pipeline? How do we discover new antibiotics? So there are a number of different approaches, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples from our research illustrating several of them. So the most effective tried and true approach that has been working for the last 60 or 70 years is to rationally improve an existing antibiotic. So this is why we have fourth or fifth generation beta-lactam antibiotics and then tetracyclines, because you take an existing class, you try to modify it to improve its potency, to overcome resistance mechanism, and you can regenerate that class of antibiotic. Um, you can try to rediscover old antibiotics. So during the golden age of antibiotic discovery, there are literally you know, hundreds of different types of antibiotics discovered. Only some of them were taken forward to the clinic because you had so many uh, potential candidates at the time, and they only took the, you know, the easiest ones to develop. So if you go back searching through the literature, potentially you can find these little nuggets which are, are worth looking at again. Um, you can repurpose old drugs. So there are drugs for other indications that they're now finding to have antibacterial, anti-infective activity. You can try using target-based approaches. So this is kind of the rational drug design approach that industry tried during the 1980s and 1990s. Unfortunately, it has been spectacularly unsuccessful. So bacteria, theoretically, um, should have really nice distinct targets from humans, in particular different types of enzymes. And they have shown that you can exquisitely develop potent inhibitors of those bacterial targets with very good selectivity over the corresponding human targets. But the problem is bacteria have all these other mechanisms that will prevent that drug from even getting inside to get to where the target is. And so when they take this enzymatic assay that's a very potent inhibitor and try to kill a bacteria with it, the bacteria just stops the drug from getting to where it needs to be and, and it's completely ineffective. And then you can go back to how antibiotics were originally discovered, which is testing un, uh, untested new chemical diversity. And part of that is going back to natural product discovery, and that's how almost all major classes of antibiotics were first discovered, but applying new twists to it. So you can do metagenomic sequencing of soil samples, trying to identify potential gene clusters that would produce antibiotics. You can grow bacteria under unusual conditions. And another approach we've been looking at is rather than looking at natural product diversity, looking at the millions of compounds that synthetic chemists have made over the last 50 or 60 years. So a couple of examples of these approaches. So um, we are looking at rationally improving an existing antibiotic. And if you go and look at a class of antibiotics to try improving, there are a few ones which have taken a long time for resistance to develop. So as a starting point for trying to improve it, taking an antibiotic where it's taken a while for resistance to develop makes, a good, uh, makes sense. So vancomycin is a, a gram-positive antibiotic. It binds to lipid 2, which is on the cell surface of gram-positive bacteria. And it's involved in 
making the cell wall, the peptidoglycan layer around um, a gram-positive bacteria and provide structural rigidity. So if you inhibit the synthesis of it, the bacteria eventually lice open. So our, our idea was to take vancomycin and append to it some other elements that specifically target to the bacterial membrane. So we add on this positively charged associative element, which interacts with the overall negative charge of a gram-positive gram bacteria. And we add in a, a hydrophobic, lipophilic, greasy, insertive element that will interact with the membrane. And that the idea behind this is that by now anchoring our vancomycin to the membrane, that's the same site where the lipid 2 target is, so we can increase the potency and, and directly target it specifically towards that lipid 2, and ideally reduce the off-target toxicity against human cells by having selective preferential for bacterial membranes instead of human cell membranes. So this is the, the general chemical structure. We've got vancomycin on the right. We have a linker in red. We have our associative element, which is a couple of amino acids in, in blue. And then we add on our greasy element at the cap off the, the peptide. And so varying those three components, we've made over 300 combinations and come up with some very potent compounds. So we call them vancapsidins. Um, they're on the right-hand side of this chart, looking at minimum inhibitory concentrations, where a smaller number is better. It's more potent. Um, we have a pathfinder compound, and there are two current lead candidates. And you can see, um, looking at MRSA, MICs, a couple of different strains, against comparator antibiotics, including vancomycin, oxacillin, linalazid, daptomycin, dalbavancin, ticoplanin, and televancin, our activity is as good or better than any of the other current clinically used gram-positive antibiotics. In particular, comparing to vancomycin, we've picked up between 30 to 100-fold in terms of potency. Um, we also have activity against strains that have started to become resistant to vancomycin. So we do lose activity, but we still think we have enough potency that we can dose high enough to be able to treat those types of infections. And we also have excellent activity against other gram-positive bacteria, um, including streptomonia, MDR strain, uh, and it retains activity in the presence of lung surfactant, where, for example, an antibiotic like daptomycin becomes inactivated and doesn't work anymore. So in terms of developing a new antibiotic, it's very important to assess how quickly resistance will arise. So we do what's called an induced resistance study, so done in test tubes. But basically, we expose bacteria to sublethal but ever-increasing concentrations of antibiotic over, in this case, a period of 20 days. And you can see for other antibiotics like daptomycin and vancomycin, cefepimi, you get this gradual increase in the MIC over those 20 days to a level where they're no longer effective to be used in the clinic. In contrast, the vancapsins in green below are so much more potent that even though we do see a slight increase, they're still at a level where therapeutically we should be able to treat those infections. Um, our proof of principle, so one thing with, with infections is that mouse models of infection are generally pretty predictive of whether they work in humans, unlike mouse models of cancer. Um, and this is our, our standard thigh infection model where you inject um, about 10 to the bacteria into the thigh, and that's the baseline in the, the brown on the left. After 24 hours, if you don't treat, you get this large increase in bacteria, so that's the, the red saline treated. And then we, um, two hours post-infection, we add one dose of our antibiotic. And this is comparing 10 milligram per kilogram doses of, of vancomycin, linalazid, daptomycin, and our two compounds. And as you can see, under those conditions, vancomycin and linalazid don't actually work, um, whereas daptomycin and vancapsin A are about equivalent efficacy, and our vancapsin B is very efficacious. And if we do a dose response with vancapsin B, 
You can see um, now we're using vancomycin at a much higher concentration of 200 mg per kg as a positive control. And at 20-fold less concentration, our vancapsin B is showing similar efficacy to, to vancomycin. So very effective and it works in vivo. And the other important thing to assess is toxicity. In particular, a lot of antibiotics have nephrotoxicity, and that's characteristic of vancomycin. So if we do a seven-day repeat dose toxicity study and look at the kidneys in vancomycin, um, dosed at 200 mg per kg per day, you see classic signs of, of kidney damage, um, so tubular dilation and necrosis. In contrast, our vancapsin B, dosed at 40 mg per kg, which is the limit we can get to, but it's still much higher than its efficacious dose, um, the kidneys are looking perfectly normal and match up with a, a saline-treated control. So this program is, you know, is very promising. We've got a candidate we think is suitable for formal preclinical development, and the problem here is basically comes down to economics. There, we've had a couple of companies that were slightly interested, but there is no company firmly committed to developing, particularly another glycopeptide antibiotic, that is willing to spend a couple million dollars it takes to get this into human clinical testing. So another approach that we've looked at is trying to rediscover old antibiotics. So the, the polymyxins are a last resort antibiotic. You heard them mentioned briefly this morning. Um, isolated originally in the 1940s, a lot of neuro and nephrotoxicity issues, so they were not used very much until the 1990s, where they've been reintroduced to treat these um, MDR, XDR, gram-negative infections where no other antibiotic works anymore. Uh, these are their, their core structures, there are two of them, polymyxin B and polymyxin E, which are colistin, um, only differ by an amino acid. The problem is colistin is very cheap, about a dollar per gram, and it's widely used as a food additive, particularly in chickens. Um, so this is from a, a chicken farm in China where you can see the premixed bags of colistin that they feed to them. And fortunately, China has recently banned the use of colistin, um, but the MCR1 gene that was again mentioned in the plenary this morning provides resistance against colistin and did originate in China. So the octopeptins are a very similar looking class of antibiotics reported in the 1970s, and they were generally ignored for the last 30 years. The thing that attracted our attention was they were reported to be active against polymyxin-resistant strains. And at the time, that wasn't an issue because polymyxin wasn't used much and there wasn't any resistance known. So you see, structurally, they've got the same kind of cyclic core differing by one amino acid. And then the, the tail is an inversion and chirality, and it's got a slightly different type of, of lipophilic group at the end of it. So we reported last year the first chemical synthesis of one member, octopeptin C4. And you can see the activity compared to polymyxin being colistin against sensitive strains isn't as good. It's about you know, tenfold or more less potent, but it retains exactly the same activity against these highly resistant polymyxin-resistant strains in red on the, the left-hand side. So yes, indeed, it, it does retain activity. And the interesting thing, if you do the same type of resistance induction study <coughs> with polymyxin B and colistin, at about day 10, you get this huge increase in the MIC, going from about 0.1 up to greater than 128. So this is, hap you know, this is the time course of a treatment in a patient that you could generate these highly resistant strains within a patient during the course of treatment. And in contrast, the octopeptins, you get this gradual increase, but nowhere near the same level of resistance. And there is no cross-resistance between the two strains. So the strains that are induced resistance to polymyxin B and colistin retain sensitivity against octopeptin, 
and the strains that were induced some resistance against octopeptin retained sensitivity against the polymyxin. So despite their very similar chemical structure, they appear to be acting by different mechanisms. And we've, we've tried doing some mode of action studies. We've developed a fluorescent probe of each class that we can use to label the bacteria. And we can see with the polymyxin, you get a very different type of damage to the bacteria. So these are E. coli. You get this membrane blebbing from the polymyxins, whereas with the octopeptin, instead, you get these very punctate dots. So you know, there definitely is something different going on in how these two different classes of antibiotics work. Um, and we have been doing some nephrotoxicity studies as well, and, and the, the compounds we've come up with appear to be much less nephrotoxic than the polymyxin. So, for this class, because it's gram-negative, there is a lot more industry interest in it, but it is earlier stage than our, our other program. So the final um, approach that I'm going to mention really quickly is trying to discover untested new chemical diversity. So chemists have made a lot of compounds over the last 100 years. So there are over 80 million compounds registered in, in chemical abstracts. About 30 million of them, if you do some crude filters, have antibacterial properties, so in terms of physical chemical properties, and about half of those, about 15 million, are academic, so they're not in commercial collections. So you have this incredible diversity contained in the labs of chemists around the world. And a database called CHEMBL um, that reports biological data for chemical compounds, only about 15% of those have ever been tested for antimicrobial activity. So here's a potential wealth of, of chemical diversity that we could be testing for antimicrobial um, activity. And so COAD, the Community for Open Antimicrobial Drug Discovery, as an initiative we started about four years ago as a collaborative effort trying to find new antibiotics. And we seek diverse compounds from chemists around the world. And we do that by offering free screening against five different bacteria, so one gram-positive and four of the key gram-negative pathogens, and two fungi, because behind bacteria are looming a resistance crisis in the development of resistance in fungi. And there are even fewer antibiotics that are effective against fungi. Um, we're able to do this because we've had significant funding, over $5 million from the Wellcome Trust, and support from the University of Queensland, where we're based. So this is our workflow. Samples come in from overseas. We dissolve them up. We format them into three to four well plates. We add our solution of bacteria and fungi, incubate for 24 hours, and then read optical density. So if the bacteria are still growing, they make the solution cloudy. If the compound has inhibited their growth, it's clear. And so you get a signal out, send the data back to the person who has submitted the compound, who retains all the rights to their compounds. And they can publish, they can patent, they can develop it. They do whatever they want with the data. Um, we go through a tiered process where we will do further validation of any hits that come out to provide enough data that they can know that this compound is promising as an antibiotic. So it's been a highly successful program. Um, over 200 different groups, academic groups from 43 countries, we have received over 200,000 compounds and screened them. We know there's another 300,000 compounds out there that people are willing to send us. So it's been very, very successful at engaging people in antimicrobial research. And we have identified over 1,000 hits. And our hit rates, if you compare it to screening, a standard commercial library that pharma companies have developed, so one curated for drug-like properties, which are not like antibiotic properties, our hit rates are about tenfold higher from our compounds. And uh, Nature reported a couple years ago, you know, we've, at that point already, we had screened twice the number of any other open access screening program. So it's been very, very successful from that perspective. So you have all these collections of compounds sitting around the world. 
You have these new initiatives such as CARBEX and GUARD-P and IMI-ENABLE that are focused on developing, you know, taking a well-characterized potential antibiotic and taking it through to clinical trials. And we bridge that gap. So we provide the validation, identify new, back, uh, new chemical composition that has antimicrobial activity and validate it suitable for development by these other organizations. So just to finish off the detect part of my talk, um, we do have some initiatives where we're trying to develop new ways of detecting bacterial infections. So again, you've seen the talks today and yesterday talking about the fact of antibiotic overuse driving resistance and the fact we have so many, uh, so much inappropriate use of antibiotics. So about 60% of prescriptions are inappropriate. And this is a different version of that cyclical difference in season where in the UK winter you have much more antibiotic prescriptions and that's driven by viral infections predominantly rather than things that can be actually treated by antibiotics. So if you look at advances in diagnostics um, from pregnancy you've gone from empirical testing to modern digital home use testing. Diabetes, this was a state-of-the-art glucose monitor in the, in the 1980s. You've now got this freestyle detection advice that gives you on-the-go on the readings. 19th century diagnostic for infection and how we're diagnosing infections today. So there's been very little advance in how we do it. And it's a $20 billion question that could significantly reduce the overuse of antibiotics in a very short period of time if we could come up with a diagnostic. And part of the problem is that microbiology um, has evolved very slowly. So you get your, your, your specimen and you've got these whiz-bang technologies at the end that can detect the bacteria, but in between there, you've got this 24-hour culture step. And what we're doing is developing a technique using magnetic nanoparticles where we can capture the bacteria directly and concentrate it down to a very small concentrated volume. And with that, we, so we capture the bacteria, um, we extract the DNA, prepare a library, and put it into minion sequencing, not minion, um, which is a high-tech device the size of a phone or smaller than a phone, which gives you real-time whole genome sequencing information. And so from that, within about 10 minutes of starting the sequencing of that sample, we can identify the species. About another 30 minutes, we can identify the strain. And then within another few hours, we start picking up all the resistance genes. So here's a potential technique um, that's we're, we are looking at clinical samples now where you could very rapidly identify exactly what type of bacteria and what type of resistance and appropriately give the correct antibiotic the first time it's given to a patient rather than the trial and error process that is currently used. So that's where I'm finishing off. Um, a large group of people, this group was set up by Professor Matt Cooper um, about eight years ago, so all this work's been done the last well, nine years now. Um, but a very effective collaborative team and we collaborate with a lot of researchers both within our country and internationally. So, thank you. Thank you, Mark. Really excellent talk and I've packed with extraordinary information. It gives us great hope for the future. Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Jason Trebiano. Um, Jason is an infectious diseases physician and director of antimicrobial stewardship and drug and antibiotic allergy services at Austin Health. He's also a member of the uh, antibiotic expert group at Therapeutic Guidelines. So um, please make um, Jason feel welcome. Okay, thanks very much. Um, so I think it was a great talk by Mark and um, this is a slightly different slant. We're going to go back 
and work out ways we can reduce inappropriate antibiotic usage. And one of those pathways we've been very interested in is penicillin allergy uh, and incorporating practices into the hospital setting. So we're going to walk through some key components of that today. So I think there certainly has been a, a call to arms for antibiotic allergy probably over the last five years in particular, but maybe a little bit longer. And as a clinician, um, there's nothing more frustrating than you walk to the bedside and you see this drug chart which has allergic to all antibiotics on it. And unfortunately, it's not as uncommon as we would think. And whilst many people are labelled, very few are actually allergic when you test them. So almost 90% of people are negative on formal testing. This lady I saw in a clinic in WA, she was actually negative on testing. Um, so she was going for tattoo removal post. Um, and so we, we jumped on the bandwagon and said, well, maybe we can use this antibiotic allergy testing as a pathway or, or weapon for antimicrobial stewardship. And others have followed suit. And we've got lots of editorials and commentaries and review articles from around the globe suggesting similar pathways. And if we look at our own backyard in Australia, 57% of Australian clinicians don't have antibiotic allergy testing available to them, yet almost 80% think it would value or value add to their practice. So we had a bit of a, a gap. So here are three key areas I'm going to touch on. And um, the major one is a relationship with antibiotic allergy and prescribing and some patient outcomes, a paradigm shift in terms of antibiotic allergy uh, knowledge, and some simple pathways that lots of healthcare workers could engage in to improve prescribing. And I'm going to tell you how we tried to squeeze all those into one chapter, in fact, one figure in the therapeutic guidelines. So this is why it's important and why I've got a job is that uh, if we look at our national antibiotic prescribing, and this is data that's been shared via NCAS, um, that when we looked at back at this about two or three years ago, there were 21,000 patients in the database, almost 33,000 prescriptions, and our national antibiotic allergy label prevalence was 18%, almost 10% for penicillin allergy. And if you look at our big users of antibiotics, like respiratory units, aged care, ID units in our transplant patients, almost one in four patients harboured such an allergy label. And if we look at those patients and who got inappropriate prescribing, you can see that overall there's certainly a small increase in the inappropriate prescriptions that these people get that have an allergy label. But it's significantly magnified in our high usage, high risk populations, like transplant patients and cancer patients. And the impact goes beyond the simple prescribing. Lots of association level data now saying that if you have an allergy label, you stay in hospital longer, you have more ICU admissions, more resistant organisms are isolated from you in subsequent admissions, you have surgical side infections, further adverse drug reactions, and you cost us more. And so I think the impact has now gone beyond just simple appropriate antibiotic choice. And whilst there's less data in primary practice, there is now emerging data that the impacts are likely to be similar. Um, an increased risk of receiving more than one antibiotic and an increased risk of receiving a restricted antimicrobial, even in primary or community care. And if you can look at the severity, well, maybe we're over-labeling these people and all the allergies are junk, or maybe they're severe. So this was some data we did in collaboration with the Alfred in Melbourne. We looked at um, data also using NAPS data and all the allergy labels that were described. And 50% of them were towards the penicillin class of antibiotics. And if you break them up, um, almost 17% would be just a drug side effect, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, thrush, unwell, no specific symptoms. A larger portion potentially were immune-mediated, but many would have fit into a mild delay rash predominantly from childhood. 
And then 21%, nobody had bothered to ask the patient or write down what the allergy was. So if you look at the numbers in general, almost 75% of reported allergies in a hospital setting could fit into an unknown or low risk criteria. So we've got some low hanging fruit that we're missing out on. But you have to be safeguard against the other end of the spectrum. So luckily, fatal anaphylaxis following antibiotic allergy medication errors is very rare. But there are also some reports of severe delayed hypersensitivity like Stephen Johnson syndrome, um, skin falls off, that's a bad outcome. And the mortality in those patients is about 25%. And they can look like this at the end of the bed, and uh, this is a Stephen Johnson syndrome patient. And commonly used antibiotics implicated, vancomycin, sulfamethoxazole, beta-lactams. And what is concerning when you survey junior doctors about recognising these severe types, they often get it wrong. So we really have to find a way to safeguard to make sure we address the low severity but beware and vigilant for the severe antibiotic reactions. So what's the solution? Well, one solution might be to say, okay, can we try and refer as many of these to a centralised service, get all the key stakeholders involved and effectively do a delabeling clinic. So we, we developed that in Melbourne. We tried to address all antibiotic allergies, not just penicillin, and really target those big groups we talked about, cancer patients, transplant patients, respiratory patients. So we developed this that Austin and Peter Mack as the pilot studies, and we engaged ID folk, AMS, allergy, and pharmacy all in one service. And that service from that pilot data was pretty successful. From 118 patients, we were able to remove 83% of allergies and were able to significantly increase almost 13-fold the use of appropriate prescriptions post-testing. So we certainly think this has value as a model, but it certainly can't um, uh, treat or address probably 2 million Australians that have a penicillin allergy. So just in terms of that initial bit, I, I certainly think, and I'm biased I know, but we have a high burden of antibiotic allergy in healthcare with probably limited resources. The impact of antibiotic allergy on prescribing and patients is significant, but the vast majority will be low severity. We still need vigilance for severe phenotypes, and antibiotic allergy testing labels can be removed and increase antibiotic appropriateness. And I certainly think it should be the focus of all healthcare workers, pharmacists, doctors, nurses, whole <coughs> So why, why can, how can we use antibiotics a little better even in those with a reported antibiotic allergy? And this is where there's been a huge paradigm shift in knowledge. And it comes down to some basic structures, back to chemistry, in fact. So when I was in medical school, I was told if you're allergic to one penicillin, you're allergic to them all. And I know I look old, but I'm not. And <laughs> in fact, the true rates of cross-reactivity between penicillins and cephalosporins is under 2%. Between carbapenems, uh, a drug we use in multi-resistant organisms, a life-saving drug, the resistance is under 1%. Our, our cross-reactivity is under 1%. And a forgotten antibiotic called as Trinan, they're zero, despite having this same core structure in all of them. And it comes down to these structures. So this beta-lactam ring is conserved in all of them, really not the primary antigen. You've got these adjacent rings here, a cephalosporin ring and a penicillin ring. And in fact, probably when there is cross-reactivity, it comes down all to this little side chain. And that R1 side chain when we look back at all the data, is probably what predicts cross-reactivity in patients. And I'm not lying, this actually happens in clinic, and we can take an example of this. This is a haematology patient during febrile neutropenia, got tazacin, which is the workhorse drug, had anaphylaxis, was positive in the clinic, but has tolerated penicillin, amoxicillin, and keflex. Here's another lady with kefazolin anaphylaxis, a renal patient, 
um, post-transplant um, and had kefazole and anaphylaxis, positive on the skin but tolerated penicillin, amoxicillin and keflex. So this idea of cross-reactivity is not just a structure on a slide, actually in clinical practice can be applied. And that one of the big take-home messages is if we are worried about cross-reactivity in somebody with a genuine allergy, amoxicillin and kefalexin share the same R1 side chain and that can be predicted, which is an important thing for community practice. So I think previous guidelines have just historically avoided beta-lactams in those that are penicillin allergic. But I think, is this putting patients at risk? Is this putting hospitals at risk? And is it driving antimicrobial resistance? And I think it is. And certainly the widespread avoidance of beta-lactams is not necessary considering these true rates of cross-reactivity. So what are some simple pathways? Well, how can we, um, how can everybody address it, not just have a multidisciplinary antibiotic allergy delabeling clinic? And that starts with picking the right phenotype. Um, nurses, when they write them on the drug chart, when they do the admission, pharmacists, when they reconcile the drug chart, doctors, when they see the patient the first time. And it's actually harder than probably what it, what it seems. And this is a very busy slide, but a, a, an antibiotic allergy assessment tool, which we've recently developed and validated uh, and uh, recently accepted for publication, it tries to grade these pa uh, symptoms patients report into severe and non-severe, green, go light, read challenge, amber, think about skin test, and red, please don't touch them, send them to clinic. And um, we, we can see how that works with um, severe rashes, angioedema, or the childhood rash, where we would say it's very low risk. And when we put that in the hands of um, some stakeholders like junior doctors and pharmacists, the sensitivity of the tool is around 91%. In fact, the highest sensitivity for the tool was in nurses and pharmacists, much more than senior clinicians and junior doctors, which I think is valuable because they're the primary ones reconciling drugs and amending that allergy record in a patient's history. So if we have a green light, how can we re-challenge more patients without skin testing? And a lot of that has been um, trying to introduce oral re-challenge programs. And there's this growing uh, wealth of data now in safely re-challenging people with low-risk penicillin allergies. And in our clinical experience, we've developed a similar protocol, trying to cherry-pick those low-risk patients and implemented this in clinical practice at the Austin and Peter Mac. It's led by ID. It's trying to uh, capture all those with a penicillin allergy um, that are an adult population. And so far, I just looked at the data yesterday in our prospective audit, we've done 40 patients so far. 50% of them would be cancer or high-risk patients. Every single one of them has tolerated the challenge, and 88% of them have received a beta-lactam that's been narrow-spectrum post the re-challenge. So simple things like this can even work. So can we put all this into one little figure or guideline? Well, we've tried. And this is a draft um, a figure of what will appear in the new therapeutic guidelines trying to address some of these issues. So you have a patient with hypersensitive to penicillins. You're going to try and split them into an immediate or delayed phenotype. You're going to think then, is this severe or non-severe? And then rather than just blanketly avoiding, trying to give some more description about, okay, avoid penicillins and cephalosporins here and severe, but you could consider a non-beta-lactam or a carbapenem, for example, considering the cross-reactivity is less than 1%. In non-severe reactions, well, why don't we try opening up that cephalosporin window, but be careful of that amoxicillin cephalic side chain. And then also introduce this concept of trying to get patient, uh, patients into testing programs that are available. In the severe, in the delayed hypersensitivity, we're going to try and beware of the severe, like the Stephen Johnson syndrome, and avoid penicillins. 
but in the mild delayed reactions, particularly in childhood, when we consider re-challenge in those patients and use an alternative penicillin. In patients that re uh, report lots of drug allergies, well, we're going to think a little bit about those and not rush in. And one key component is if they report a non-immune mediated reaction, try and remove it from the drug chart. Try and get rid of the nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and give a beta-lactam. Go forth and give a beta-lactam. <laughs> so uh, I think this is trying to put some of those modern concepts into a figure that hopefully will be used by um, lots of people. So uh, hopefully the time, but you know, some key points today. I think there's a large burden of antibiotic allergy in Australian healthcare. It significantly impacts on key AMS endpoints and patient outcomes. The vast majority of antibiotic allergies are false and amendable to point of care testing. We still need vigilance for severe reactions to ensure patient safety. But the knowledge of cross-reactivity can aid prescribing and significantly impact guidelines. And there's certainly an opportunity to incorporate antibiotic allergy testing into practice and our guidelines. So thanks very much. And there's some members of TG here who've worked on that last figure. It's a lot of work, particularly Michelle, and a lot of people that are working with this allergy program in Melbourne. So thanks very much. Thank you very much, Jason. Um, you have saved us a little bit of time, but we will still take the questions at the end. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Tricia Peel. Um, so Tricia is, I've got the same problem as Heath, but in reverse, uh, an infectious diseases physician and uh, NHMRC career development fellow. She leads the hospital stream at the NHMRC um, National Centre for Antimicrobial Stewardship. Um, and she too is a member of the Antibiotic Guideline Expert Group. We're very lucky to have such talented people. So without further ado, welcome, Tricia. Thank you very much, Sue, and thank you for the opportunity to come and talk today. So I'm going to be talking about surgical prophylaxis, um, which uh, for many physicians uh, and antimicrobial stewardship physicians is an area where we're always a little bit reluctant to, to tread. It's often um, a bit of the, the last frontier in some ways for antimicrobial stewardship. But I think uh, the first thing I'd like to do is, I guess, present an argument as to actually why this is an important area we should be looking into. So we know from Australian data that there's over 10, well, now probably over 10 million hospitalisations occurring each year. And when you look at it, one in five of these hospitalisations will involve a surgical procedure. So over two million Australians undergoing some surgery each year. Despite our best efforts, uh, around about five to up to 20% of patients will develop an infection following their surgery. Um, this is called a surgical site infection. And these infections, unfortunately, are quite expensive. Uh, so the average cost is US dollars, around $20,000 for treating a surgical site infection. So we're looking at spending over $2 billion a year in Australia uh, for management of surgical site infections. We also know that about just over half of all surgical site infections are preventable with the application of evidence-based strategies. And one of the key prevention strategies is surgical antimicrobial prophylaxis. So this is the administration of an antibiotic before uh, the surgical incision, um, and it's given to prevent a surgical site infection. So when you think about the number of Australians undergoing surgery each year, uh, this, and the patients receiving antibiotics at the time, this is obviously a major source of antibiotic consumption. And so again, this is some data from uh, the National Antimicrobial Prescribing Survey. 
and surgical prophylaxis is a leading indication for antibiotic use in a hospital on any given day. Unfortunately, surgical prophylaxis is also the leading reason for inappropriate use in a hospital, with over 40% of antibiotic prescriptions for surgical prophylaxis considered inappropriate. As worked through the National Centre for Antimicrobial Stewardship, we wanted to actually drill down into reasons for this inappropriate use and get a really good idea about what was happening in our theatre environment. And so this was a survey that was conducted uh, across Australia um, and uh, we really wanted to look into what things were driving the behaviour. Was it certain risk factors in the patient group, certain surgical types? what was happening around the operative period, and also importantly when we're feeding back to our stakeholders, did it actually make a difference? So was it impacting on our patients? And so this survey, this is a 2016 pilot and the 2017 has just been analysed at the moment. So it was from 67 facilities across Australia and we captured over 4,000 episodes of surgery. Looking at the range of surgery, we had a very broad representation of surgical types. Um, and it's reflective of the how common sorts of surgeries are performed in Australia. So, for example, orthopaedic surgery, elective joint replacement is one of the leading reasons for surgical uh, procedures in Australia. From our data, we looked at both the antibiotics given before surgery and then after surgery, so the procedural and the post-procedural. When we look at the time of surgery, about 40% of antibiotics were not appropriate, so they were not concordant with guidelines. Concerningly, when we looked at the post-operative period, 60% of antibiotics given were actually not in keeping with guidelines. So there's a huge amount of inappropriate use occurring. And we know that certain groups are more likely to be inappropriate. So for example, our vascular surgery colleagues, unfortunately at the time of surgery, had around about a 68% inappropriate use. And this was predominantly that the antibiotic was not given at the right time. When we look at the antibiotics in post-procedurally, we know that uh, the surgeons who were uh, less uh, uh, inclined to prescribe according to guidelines were our cardiac surgery colleagues. And this was predominantly because they uh, were giving antibiotics for too long a period in the post-operative period. <laughs> and obviously this has gained a lot of focus, uh, particularly at the policy level, and now uh, surgical prophylaxis has been incorporated into standard three of the hospital accreditations. So hospitals must prescribe their antibiotics in accordance with the guidelines. They need to administer the antibiotics in a timely way. And they need to um, uh, CC antibiotics after surgery. So there's a great deal of scrutiny uh, from the government. But I think introducing regulations is not always the, the only way to change behaviour. And so we're, this is some of the work we're doing through NCAS, really looking at how do we address this problem. And I think the issue of uh, physicians uh, and surgeons not really following guidelines or creatively interpreting guidelines is, is not a new phenomenon. Uh, we know from a number of papers, including this is a fabulous uh, a paper uh, from 1999, but it's still relevant today, that there are a lot of reasons why people don't follow guidelines. So there's aspects related to knowledge, attitudes, and also behaviours and external pressures. When we drill down into antibiotic use, and this is a paper from Esmita Chirani and the um, group from the Imperial College of London, we know that there are some reasons why people, uh, or influences of antibiotic decision-making. 
And medicine is a very hierarchical society. We have the consultant who issues the edicts and the junior staff who follow through. And this is true in the, both in the general wards but also in the surgical wards. There's also doctors like to exercise their own autonomy. Uh, they like to make their own decisions. And also importantly, our evidence is not perfect. We don't have a randomised control trial for every single procedure, for every single patient, for every sort of situation. Um, and we need to acknowledge that. So now looking at some of the work in the actual in operating environment, and I think this is another paper from Azanita Tirani, which I think is a really good touchstone for this sort of work. It's highlighting actually the complexity of decision making that goes into when a doctor prescribes an antibiotic in the surgical ward. So it's, there's a lot of factors that come into play. It's not just a simple, straightforward decision. And when we think about the environment, there's a lot of people who we need to engage and, and, and meet with. It's not just one person prescribing. Uh, and I'll leave you to pick who you think who is who. But when we're thinking about the operating environment, we have the surgeon who's performing the surgery, the anaesthetist who uh, is often the one administering the antibiotic. We have, of course, the patient and family members. We have nursing staff. And also uh, we have hospital administrators who are having an increasing interest in this field. And this is some work by uh, Jennifer Broom et al, who were looking at some of the uh, influences of this environment and the relationships. It's a really interesting environment because you actually have two competing hierarchies in many ways. So you have the surgeons and you have the anaesthetists. And many people have described this as a bit of a marriage and sometimes not a very functional marriage uh, in that they can sometimes disagree on things. and. It, um, have opposing opinions about many things, including antibiotics. But I think in this uh, paper by Jennifer, they looked at what was uh, influencing the decisions and what was influencing the relationship, particularly between surgeons and anaesthetists. And there are a number of key factors, including time pressures and workflow. So there's a real key uh, focus from hospitals in particular about throughput of surgery. So elective surgery lists have to meet certain uh, uh, time uh, uh, contingencies, so they have to actually be able to get the surgery performed in a certain time. And one of the biggest things is to avoid cancellation of surgery. So things that influence the time that the antibiotics given that needs to be administered all impact on workflow. The other thing is that, um, as mentioned before, sometimes surgeons have different opinions from anaesthetists, and there's a lot of uh, factors that influence that um, dynamics when they, particularly when they uh, have different opinions about what a patient should receive. The other thing is it's a, it's a t uh, teamwork and, and there's a lot of trust. So in some groups where the surgeon and anaesthetist have been working together for a long period of time, they actually don't discuss antibiotics. They know what needs to be given and they just give it. But when you've got a new surgeon or a new anaesthetist, then there's a, again it's an interesting dynamic and this is where some friction arises. It's also interesting when you have a junior doctor and a senior doctor, for example, a junior anaesthetist and a senior surgeon. We know that the junior anaesthetist will not challenge the senior surgeon, no matter whether they agree with the surgeon or not. And I think one of the things that particularly is driving this inappropriate use is um, a ownership of risk. And I think when we think about our surgical colleagues, we don't always realise that actually they're very concerned about surgical site infection and the risk of surgical site infection, and they take a lot of personal responsibility for a patient getting an infection. 
And this is an interesting paper which looked at uh, the duration of surgical prophylaxis uh, following surgery uh, and also uncertainty avoidance. So uncertainty avoidance is, is a way of measuring how tolerant people are of risk uh, and what they would do to try to avoid risk and uncertainty. And this paper correlated uh, uncertainty avoidance with uh, the proportion of patients who were getting inappropriate durations of surgical prophylaxis. So the more you were adverse against uncertainty, so the more you disliked it, the longer you were likely to give surgical prophylaxis. So again, I think this is sort of a risk mitigation process where people tend to give it for longer because they think it will help their patients. Um, and this is something that we really do need to understand in the dynamic. The other aspect of the paper by Jennifer Broom et al was they looked at uh, what the uh, antimicrobial stewardship team were doing in this environment. And I think there's a few telling comments of, uh, from, from this work. I think the antimicrobial stewardship physicians and ID physicians have been a bit reluctant to engage in this environment. We often don't go into theatre, we often don't understand how the process works and what the time pressures are. And I think that we've been seen as sort of an, an outside member but not really part of their team. The other thing is, getting back to the issue of surgical site infection, I don't think we always fully appreciate how concerning surgical site infection is to them. And so we often, you know, so, uh, have these edicts about don't use antibiotics, don't do this, don't do that, but we don't really always understand the complexity or we're not always sympathetic to what's driving this behaviour. And so I think we really need to engage with our surgical colleagues to try to understand uh, the aspects of risk and, and surgical site infection risk and try to work with them to find some solutions. I guess the thing though in, in all of this is uh, the patient and actually unfortunately we really haven't engaged with our patients and consumers much in this debate at all and this is a big area again where we need to look into things and get some uh, further uh, data on, in this area. So sort of these are the backgrounds but again we come back to how do you change behaviour. And there's been a number of studies that looking at how you can potentially change behaviour for antimicrobial prescribing. So this is a meta-analysis uh, by Davy et al, which looked at a number of studies, including 17 studies looking in at surgical prophylaxis. And they used a range of different techniques, um, including guidelines, education, and so on. Uh, the data, not that you need to read this, but does show that when you introduce a program, that the uh, amount of appropriate use does improve. But the thing is, we often don't show that it's sustained and it doesn't, whether it, it continues beyond the life of the study is, is unknown. The other thing we know is that, you know, it's mo most likely something where you need to have a number of different aspects. It's not just one thing. So the first step we've been doing as part of work through NCAS is actually looking at the guidelines um, and in particular therapeutic guidelines, given that that's what everyone is measuring appropriateness against. And we looked at the uh, implementability of the guidelines using the GLIA, which is a validated tool. And with uh, working with key stakeholders, we got some interesting feedback on the guidelines. So some of the questions that, and thoughts that came out from this work is that there was, uh, the stakeholders were wanting clarity around things like dosing in obesity. They were also wanting clarity around which procedures do and do not require prophylaxis. Uh, so obviously there are 
thousands of different surgeries being performed and trying to really drill down into which procedures do and don't need so, uh, prophylaxis. And I think a key thing uh, is acknowledging and highlighting the evidence limitations. Um, and I think that's important uh, to, uh, for our stakeholders to be able to understand when there's clear evidence and when there isn't. And so we've been sort of taking some of this feedback in mind and, and particularly with the therapeutic guidelines and again, um, thank you for, for this table from the uh, draft version of the guidelines where we're trying to provide a lot more clarity around the when we do and don't need prophylaxis. And this is a, a table that's going to be included with each of the surgical procedures really saying in a simplified form when you do and don't need prophylaxis but also providing some clarity about um, situations where uh, there are certain factors that may influence whether you get prophylaxis or not. The other thing we have had feedback from, from our surgical colleagues is that they would like a simplified version of when to use it specific to their surgery. So this is um, some work that we've been doing at Epworth, um, introducing surgical prophylaxis guidelines where we've broken it down to the surgery type and then whether you need antibiotics or not. And this is an old version that needs to be updated, but it's really for each surgeon when they're in theatre, the cardiothoracic surgeon and the anaesthetist can go and look at it and say, oh, okay, well, this is what you need to do. These are the exceptions. This is what to do in the case of immediate beta-lactam hypersensitivity. So really, these sort of charts are going up in theatre walls to try and help um, make it, the process very simplified. Obviously, the guidelines, though, are not enough, and there's a lot more further work that we're doing as part of the National Centre for Antimicrobial Stewardship. And importantly, we're trying to work with the stakeholders, working with the surgeons and anaesthetists to really understand and then to also work with them about a way to actually improve practice. And as I've said before, this sort of approach is likely to be multidisciplinary. So working with the surgical team, having a multidisciplinary input, be it with nursing and staff and pharmacy. And I think uh, assigning responsibility, so who's actually responsible for prescribing, and also assistance with diagnostics. I think also it's important for the antimicrobial stewardship teams and the ID physicians to really engage in a meaningful way with our surgical and anaesthetic colleagues to really try to understand the process but come up with solutions that uh, understands the complexity of this issue. So uh, I guess, you know, we've I've touched on a lot of uh, data from NCAS work and really uh, we've, from our work, we've sort of shown that surgery is a very, is a source of major antimicrobial consumption, but unfortunately it's also a major source of inappropriate antibiotic use. The theatre environment, like many of the medical environments, is a complex environment. We have competing hierarchies between the anaesthetists and the surgeons um, and competing demands. So the demands for throughput of patients through surgery, um, and demands from the hospital administration and regulatory bodies. I think importantly, and I've emphasised it a few times, that ID and AMS traditionally have had a fairly low profile in this environment and I really do think we need to engage with our colleagues um, to try and improve uh, the processes and also improve appropriate use. Guidelines are important but they are not the only thing. We need to have a multi-pronged approach that needs to be cognizant of the pressures faced by our colleagues but also as a solution that's acceptable to all. So it's likely to be multi-pronged. We have to understand the context in which the prescribing is occurring, but we also have to demonstrate 
sustainability and also impact for the patient. So I'll stop there. There's a number of people, including uh, various uh, collaborators from the National Centre of Antimicrobial Stewardship um, and other groups that we work with. So thank you. Thank you very much, Tricia. And thank you for keeping to time. Um, our next speaker is very well known to all of us, um, uh, but I will still introduce her, um, Karen Hoskin. Um, she is the Executive Manager of Corporate Affairs and Communications at NPS MedicineWise, and she will be giving a presentation on the consumer engagement strategy. So welcome, Karen. Thank you, Sue. And I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people. Pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And Sue, I'd like to say a special thank you to you and your team for partnering with us on this stream. It's been a fascinating conversation over the, over the two days and, and some fabulous insights into what's happening in this space. And today, looking at the innovations that are, that are happening, that are underway, I just hope we can bring some light to that and, uh, and, and progress those even further. So I'm going to take a slight change of pace. I'm going to be talking about um, engaging consumers in AMR. So many of you would be aware that this has been a, a focus of NPS MedicineWise uh, over the past, oh gosh, really going back about 15 years. Uh, but particularly uh, from 2012 to 2017, we ran a program called Reducing Antibiotic Resistance, which was a very multifaceted uh, campaign to try and re uh, reduce antibiotic resistance. It had educational components for health professionals, but has also had a, a strong focus on engaging consumers in this issue. Um, it's a, obviously an area that's a, a clear concern to all of us in, in the health space, but uh, growing increasingly in the community. Uh, and we want to influence uh, consumer uh, views on this area, but it's very tough to cut through. Uh, we've got a lot of competition to get our audience's attention. Uh, consumers get thousands of messages every day. Uh, it's, I'm going to give you some insight into the ways we've built consumer engagement in antibiotic resistance and the way that we've tried to do that at a community level rather than talking about it in, in the context of specific people who are, uh, I guess, uh, exposed to issues around antibiotic resistance. It's how do you write, raise general aware, awareness. So one of the biggest threats to human health today, well, it is a scary message, uh, but so is smoking kills, so are the road statistics that we get hit with all the time, so is the European wasp invasions and Ebola. Uh, just telling people about a problem is not enough to actually engage them and empower them. Uh, people won't be led where they don't want to go unless we can convince them of the benefit and align what we do with their values, their needs and their circumstances. Uh, and it's harder to convince people that there's a problem uh, where they don't feel directly affected. As I said, we've uh, just completed a five-year program. It's um, uh, been a, a, like I said, the key for us for empowering consumers has been um, really to make it meaningful for them. So our strategy is pretty simple. Um, we've start, tried to educate and engage people uh, in the problem uh, and empower them to be part of the solution. Uh, a key message that we've used all throughout the campaign is that we're all part of the problem and we're all part of the solution. At a high level, these are the, the um, key elements of our strategy. Having a clear objective is obviously key, um, and so is identifying who the target audiences are that you need to reach. Research did give us uh, key insights into uh, what people thought about the issue. This, in terms, informed our positioning and uh, helping us to understand what will compel people to act when it, when it comes to this issue. Uh, over the five years of the campaign, we've drawn, uh, drawn from, innovated and refined a toolbox of techniques. Uh, it's been very important for us to be where the conversation is. 
uh, to understand where people are getting their information uh, and to have respect uh, about people's uh, communication preferences and understanding that not one size fits all. Some of you may remember this. Uh, when we first launched, launched the mass audience component of the uh, campaign back in 2012, we used uh, collectivism to really bring people together uh, as resistance fighters. Uh, this has remained a core theme throughout uh, the campaign, although we did tweak it slightly following the rise of ISIS and uh, change the T-shirts to be antibiotic resistance fighter, just to make it a little <laughs> bit more explicit. Uh, do you think that people walking around hospitals in the, in the purple shirts wearing resistance fighter sent a, a bit of an odd message? Um, it was a very successful way of engaging people uh, in the issue, getting them to think about what they could do personally uh, to help solve the problem. We had a pledge. Uh, so wrapping this in, in infographics and dynamic content was actually a very successful technique in terms of reaching audiences, particularly via social media. In the early days, we used celebrity endorsement uh, to bring prominence to the issue. Uh, and what this, this enabled us to do was to build some very strong media partnerships from the outset um, at, the, at the commencement of the campaign. Of course, sustaining a large-scale mass audience campaign with celebrities at the helm and lots of TV advertising is not sustainable for an organisation like ours. It's a not-for-profit. Um, but I, So I'm going to ring, run you through some of the other techniques that we've used over the course of the five years. The social media engagement, it's, it's, social media is not a fad, it is a fundamental shift in the way that people communicate uh, and it's become a key channel for us to share knowledge, uh, to influence behaviour and understand our audiences as well. It's, it's not the only channel but it is increasingly important. A pharmacist hour and the chats that we are able to, to facilitate between people and our, our pharmacists on staff are very, very popular and it's a great way to engage with, um, with the community. Gamification. It's, as humans, we have an innate sense of play. Uh, tempting audiences to participate in a game or a competition. It allows information and knowledge to be imparted in a fun, engaging way, entertaining way. Uh, our cold and flu recovery race, which isn't a live game, I can't play it with you now, um, it was, it's a good example of it in action though. We had digital game animation. Uh, we had consumers were asked to select from two, uh, two race characters profile, one that was an antibiotic assistant and one that wasn't. It was only a 15 second uh, game, game for people to play, but it imparted a raft of complex information in a, a quite a compelling way over that, um, that 15 seconds. Uh, and over, I think over 10,000 people played the game, which was quite exciting at the time. Um, nudge and choice architecture techniques, uh, you know, presenting choices to consumers, nudging them to socially desirable behaviours like not asking for antibiotics or viruses, uh, waiting room announcements, GP display certificates like these have, have worked successfully for us in controlled tests as well. A co-creation is a technique that uh, invites and encourages consumers to contribute their own ideas and contribute to a broader campaign. Uh, some of you may be aware that we partnered with Tropfest a couple of years ago uh, to run a short film competition. Um, as part of our efforts to reduce antibiotic resistance, and it was a great success. We had uh, an amazing calibre of entries into the competition, and in an era where entertaining video content is so accessible and so easily shareable, uh, we were able to reach new parts of the community, and we had very positive feedback from right across the, the globe about the initiative. Uh, and the important thing for us is it generated a bank of communication assets that we couldn't in our wildest dreams have produced or afforded to produce um, by all these amazing filmmakers from around the country. Uh, and we've been able to draw on those ourselves for many different communication purposes, including supporting the work of the World Health Organisation. 
Forgive me if you have already seen this, I am going to show it to you. This was the winning entry from the Trotfest competition. Uh, it was shown at the Trotfest competition itself, but it was also said extensively viewed on social media. And we managed to secure free airtime on commercial TV. And it ran for several months, but it wasn't an adult time slot. Um, and uh, it will soon become apparent why. <laughs> Excuse me. Aren't you gonorrhea? Why, yes. Yes, I am. Thank God for antibiotics. Can I get you a drink? Antibiotics aren't what they used to be. What do you mean? Well, they're losing their power. People use them so often these days, the world has created new strains of superbugs that spread old favorites, like tuberculosis, syphilis, and yours truly. Jesus. But the good news is, I'm now much easier to pick up. <laughs> the pick up. <laughs> so has it worked? Well, we have seen measurable changes in consumer knowledge and beliefs, and this is really positive. Uh, but the work's not over. Uh, it is a very important and ongoing conversation that we need to build on uh, to continue to build knowledge and engage people and empower them to, um, to be part of the solution. Um, I'll just show you a couple of slides that give you a sense of um, some of the uh, yes, metrics that we've been able to measure. Uh, so looking at um, some of the, sorry, where am I looking at? Um, the increases in knowledge around um, bacteria becoming resistance to antibiotics. This could be some part, part of the reason why Australia's, Australians seem to be so much more clued into the fact that it's bacteria that become resistance, not humans. Um, also in terms of looking at you know, what intended behaviour of people might be. We've had some, uh, some statistically significant differences uh, over the course of the campaign uh, and being able to look at um, you know, what people's knowledge is around particular elements. So we've been able to drill down and, and uh, um, evolve our messaging over the course of the campaign from general messages explaining what the issue is to helping people to understand what they can actually do um, to be part of the solution. To finish, uh, following on from the success of the Tropfist initiative, we ran another film campaign uh, competition, and this time it was in partnership with Open Air Cinemas. Again, we've ended up with fantastic assets that we can use to, to drive home uh, the message about antibiotic resistance, uh, and this was the winning entry in the over-18s category, so I will leave you with this. This is uh, Get the Bugs Out of the Club. How many antibiotics here tonight, bro? Sorry, what? Antibiotics? How many, cuz? Oh, a few. A few? I think you've got a bit more than a few, bro. But I'm sick. Actually, misuse or overuse of antibiotics can cause a bacteria in your system to become immune, thus resulting in... Antibiotic, antibiotic resistance. resistance. And that's how you get superbugs, bro. Like your friends over there? Yeah! I've never seen them in my life. No bugs in the club, Jeek. Yeah. get out. Thank you very much. Well, thank you to all our wonderful speakers today. I think uh, the focus on innovation was really obvious in, in, in all of your presentations. Very exciting time. And um, we do have almost 15 or 10 to 15 minutes for questions. So I'd like to invite our speakers to um, perhaps come up here so that they they've got access to microphones. While that's happening, um, do we have any questions from the room? 
We've got a roving microphone at the back. Okay. So just while you're settling in, we'll take our first question. Jill. Yes. Um, Jill Thistlethwaite, MPS Medicine Wise. Um, only once was the role of pharma mentioned in this problem, and it was around pharma aren't developing new antibiotics because they're not going to make so much profit. Um, I don't know if anyone saw um, an article in The Guardian yesterday, the headline, Antibiotic Resistance Crisis Worsening Because of Collapse of Supply. So companies are, no, are not actually making antibiotics in the numbers necessary, so people are using inappropriate antibiotics because they're the ones they can get, and they're giving them for two short courses. I wonder if anyone can say, what do we do f to pharma? Oh, so <laughs> who wants to take that question? <laughs> yeah, like I'll, I'll, I'll start and answer. Um, and part of the reason I think a lot of those antibiotics that are not being available, things like vancomycin, they're generic now. So the big pharma companies generally don't make them. It's relying on companies in India or China that are the major suppliers of a lot of the antibiotics. And so, you know, obviously, we don't have control over them. And so, the, you know, so there are initiatives being developed to save the old antibiotics where, again, it's going to require a coordinated global effort to stockpile or, you know, keep those drugs available and have manufacturers supply them. And it requires significant investment for multiple governments to set up a fund that would, you know, enable a company to be guaranteed money for producing a drug. And in, in terms of developing new antibiotics, um, they there's an initiative in Europe that just published a report on developing different incentives to encourage pharma companies to invest in antibiotic research. And so they're, they're push incentives, which are trying to foster, put money into research, but then there are also pull incentives where um, the major recommendation that came out of it would be to have a reward of a fund of multiple billions of dollars, where if you got an improved antibiotic, there would be a pool of, of one or two billion dollars that would be awarded to that manufacturer, and in particular for them not to try promoting its extensive use. Because again, for a pharmaceutical company developing new antibiotic, the first thing they want to do is try selling as much as they can, which is obviously not what you want to do with a brand new antibiotic. So Mark, do you think with that model that it is a case of trying to persuade pharma to behave differently or that we should really be bypassing them and, and, and putting the onus on, on government. I mean, we've seen a lot of sort of high-level injection of funds, but probably not enough. Um, unfortunately, I don't think you can bypass pharma because there's so much expertise in actually doing the drug development process. You know, there, there's in terms of finding things that aren't toxic and developing them and the medicinal chemistry behind it, it's very difficult to avoid the expertise of, of the big pharma companies. So I think you do have to engage them. And I think it was alluded to this morning, you know, at some point they will re-engage when they figure out that all their oncology drugs are no longer working anymore because people are dying of infections. Yeah, I think we heard that this morning <laughs> that people will die of the chronic disease, <laughs> they won't be able to treat the chronic diseases because they'll be dead, yeah. All right, okay. So are there any other questions from the audience? I'm Jess Gibney from Therapeutic Guidelines. I was going to ask a question of, um, of it's probably relevant to both Mark and Karen about the sort of Mark you touched on the appetite for um, like we're happy to tolerate about a thousand dollars a day for antibiotics, but um, several hundreds of thousands of dollars for cancer chemotherapy, and I wondered whether we have any sense of why it is that we're given that the outcomes of both serious infections and, um, and cancers can be why there's such a difference in what we're sort of happy to accept? 
<laughs> yeah, it, it, um, to some extent it baffles me. Um, I, I guess one of the reasons is that for majority of infections, you are still able to treat them with a cheap generic antibiotic that costs, you know, $10. And so you're competing against, um, you know, a small percentage of infections now are the highly resistant ones that need the super special antibiotics. And so you're competing against a market where so much of it is, is very... Um, inexpensive otherwise so I, I think that's part of it but I don't think there's a different social conversation about these these conditions too uh, I mean you know cancer and, and other chronic diseases get a lot, lot, lot more uh, community engagement conversation you know acute infections tend to happen quietly in the background and you know it's, it's a tragedy but it doesn't get talked about uh, anywhere near as much as the, uh, the chronic diseases do so I don't know if that's a, an influence on I guess societal expectations around these sorts of these sorts of issues. Yeah, I mean you've got the you know so many cancer agencies, the Australian cancer, but you don't have the Australian infectious disease the, charity. Well we do have the sepsis society but, but yeah. Yeah, not, not as many, certainly not as much All right. I know there's a question at the back there. Thank you. Jane Robertson from Newcastle. Uh, it's a, partly a comment but also seeking some suggestions of where we go in the future. Uh, across, I've watched over a long period of time, NPS Medicine Wise has been working to, to promote the messages. We hear repeatedly these concerns about failure to use guidelines, yet we have wonderful therapeutic guidelines in the antibiotic area that are very highly regarded. We were referred to a paper from 1999 as addressing some of the key issues in why guide, guidelines are not used. We don't want to go the regulatory approach because that's deemed unacceptable. So where do we go? How do it is behaviour change, and I know it's difficult, but when we don't seem to be making much progress over time, so so where are the new directions that are likely to have some impact? Thank you. Um, I guess I might start this one off. Um, I think the guidelines are an important case cornerstone of this process, but it's not the only thing. And producing a guideline and then putting it out there doesn't mean that people are actually going to open it or refer to it or look to it. So you can't, you're expecting far too much of a guideline if you think that you can introduce it and then everything will be better. I think um, things are, there's certainly been a lot of shift in recognition of the importance of behavioural change, um, translational medicine, implementation science. And I think it's in many ways part of the challenge is this is an area where we understand the importance but actually attracting the attention, attracting the funding to be able to do this work um, has been challenging but I think there's an increased recognition from the government, from other funding bodies etc that suddenly you know it's not just about creating the evidence or making guidelines it's actually about translating it and making sure it, it, you're putting it in process that it may actually change practice. So I think you know, to do the implementation work is really difficult to to go and to talk to the surgeons or to talk to all groups, you know, be them GPs, be the consumers. It's a time-consuming process. Uh, you know, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of uh, resources, and I think it's been difficult to do um, previously, but I do think things are changing and there has been a shift towards more uh, of that sort of work going on now. Yeah, I mean, it ties back to the session we had yesterday. So we were looking yesterday, I get that, the high-level interventions and strategies, and I'm not sure if you were there, but essentially um, 
there, there are a lot of component parts in a successful program. You need the leadership, um, you need the education, and that's where the guidelines come in in terms of just knowing what is best practice, but of itself that's not enough. Then you do need the interventions and to evaluate and monitor. So, yeah, we are looking for action on all fronts to improve practice. And, um, uh, there, I mean, I think there, there is now a very clear understanding that next frontier is antimicrobial stewardship in primary care. And um, we can at least draw on some of the models that have been successful in hospitals and then adapt them, I guess, to the general practice setting. I think one, the, other, the other difference is probably where we've done things a little better, both in a hospital and community, is bringing the problem groups at the beginning. Uh, at the design stage rather than just at the implementation stage. And certainly at a hospital setting, we're getting a lot better at that. And I think if you have the conversation, and rather than asking them, rather than telling them, I think is, uh, is, is a big difference. Yeah, get the buy-in, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, do we have any other questions? Oh, you've got one, okay. Let's go on. Jason, I was just um, wanting to your comments, I guess, on... Um, the implications of your um, work with antibiotic allergies in the community, like what can a GP do um, for a patient that's you know, got several um, antibiotic allergies? Is, is there a way of them being safely delabeled, or what should a GP's process be? Yeah, I think because a large proportion of, of uh, antibiotic allergies are low risk, um, in fact, they're going to be able to delabel a lot in their own clinical practice. So I think uh, addressing the low risk is where they can start with. And the other thing I always recommend is the documentation. Um, that a documentation of that initial reaction is so important because in five years, 10 years, 20 years, we go back and see if it was real, that initial phenotyping or documentation is so important. So they've got a huge role, both in diagnosis and also removal of those low risk. And that's the vast majority of them. It's, it's a huge burden. So can I just ask you, Jason, so how can you tell if someone's low risk if there's no notes? It goes in the unknown box. and. I, it's very crude, isn't it? But, you know, for example, our protocol, we say if it's unknown more than 10 years ago and the patient is in sound, body and, body and mind, they can't remember it. It can't be that severe. So we re-challenge them. Um, but most of the time it is unknown and we have to go by patient recollection. If you look at the unknown box and then go and ask the patient or if what's in the box and ask the patient, 25% of the time will be wrong. And I think the patient is often uh, right, actually. Yes. <laughs> I mean, this takes us back to, um, to your talk, really. I mean, th there's a whole other side of the equation, which is to focus on the consumers. And um, you presented some really innovative approaches there. But do you have a comment on how we could scale that up and what would that look like um, if you had an unlimited budget? <laughs> oh, gosh, I have an unlimited budget. What we could do? Uh, oh, look, I mean, I think, um, you know, we've managed to do a lot nationally with not a lot um, and I think you know if we look at some of the global initiatives to try and address this as well I mean the World Health Organization is really behind this we've got World Antibiotic Awareness Weeks now we've got things that draw attention to this there are lots of ways of, of communicating with the community that don't cost a lot um, you know social media and being able to, to activate communities and be able to get spread messages out that people can then promulgate throughout their own networks so I think there are ways of doing it that don't require you know, the bells and whistles, uh, but it, it, getting people uh, to, to understand um, the messages and be able to, to all sing from the same song sheet is really, really important. I, I had a sort of similar quick question just for Karen, just in terms of, <laughs> so you know, what, I think one of the reasons driving antibiotic overuse is a perception that 
they're harmless. So you can take them even if you don't have something because other than this nebulous thing of antimicrobial resistance, that there's no harm. What about a campaign highlighting the fact that there are side effects to antibiotics, you know, the direct damage to your body, um, damage to your microbiome, which is increasingly being associated with a lot of other side effects. Absolutely. Oh, look, I think it's, it's absolutely an important element. And it was interesting, when we were, at one point during the campaign, I can remember, remember we did some research with consumers, and uh, it, it became evident that there were a lot of uh, non-English-speaking background communities, called communities, who were treating antibiotics like a, um, a preventative. Mm. So, you know, they'd pop an antibiotic every day mm. just, just to prevent getting well. And even if they had an antibody-resistant infection, they thought, oh, it doesn't really matter, there'll be a stronger antibiotic to deal with that anyway. So, you know, we've had to be quite targeted in our messaging for certain groups of the community where we've identified that's a, that's a key insight for that group and a key belief. Um, but, yeah, absolutely, being able to... Um, get the balance right, help people understand that antibiotics aren't a cure-all, there are side effects to these things, uh, is really, you know, I think, a key key message um, as part of the education for people. We've got some very nice bad rash photos, if you like. Oh, <laughs> we love bad rash photos. Happy to share. Excellent. Uh, well, in the interest of time, it's half past 12, um, I'll just wrap up. Uh, before we thank our speakers, I'd just like to say um, we've had two days really to focus on the issue of antimicrobial resistance, among many other issues that we've had on the agenda. Um, and um, I, I think we really are at a turning point. We, 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 we have the research that shows us what interventions work. Um, we have, um, I hope, leadership commitment to um, improving practice and running strategies. Um, we certainly need um, the leadership and we need uh, resourcing that goes out you know, across all sectors of the healthcare system, but it, particularly in primary care. Uh, it is um, an opportunity, I think, at the moment to roll out antimicrobial stewardship in primary care and uh, we will be uh, looking keenly at developments in that area. Um, we heard yesterday the health department is supportive of that and obviously uh, has in mind uh, involving College of GPs and I'm sure NPS medicine-wise as well and other players. Um, but today's been about innovation and I think that sort of lifts my spirits anyway to know that there are bright minds applying themselves to other um, really critical issues that will improve our use of antibiotics. So if you could just join with me in thanking our speakers.